everybody, and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, volume 6, issue 253. And today we'll be talking about Contra and Super Contra. The entire schedule up to and including issue 300 can now be found on the Cane and Rinse website. Uh, but for those looking into the near future, the next five issues of the show will cover Street Fighter 3, the three incarnations of that, but probably focusing mostly on Third Strike and how Capcom got there. After that, it's The Order, 1886, then Undertale, following that, our penultimate in our long-running Zelda series, it's The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword, and after that, it's uh, an independently developed curio known as They Breathe, you can find it on Steam, I think it costs under an, an English pound if you want to play along with the show, and takes less than an hour, so that's one that everyone should play along with the show you've got no excuse head to canerince.com for articles features reviews and links to our other outlets such as our facebook page our youtube channel and our friendly and intelligent and busy forum and if you enjoy what we do all these podcasts and other things you can support us in a number of ways Uh, you can buy a t-shirt or a bag and we get a few pounds from each sale at shop.spreadshirt.co.uk slash canerince uh, and they are of significant quality as well. We can attest to that, uh, unless they've changed their manufacturing processes in the mean- meantime. Hopefully not. Good stuff from Spreadshirt. Thank you. And also we have a Patreon, uh, which is where you can donate money, a uh, dollar a month, a pound a month, whatever you think, whatever you can afford, uh, whatever all of this stuff that we produce is worth to you. And uh, all the money we receive will be ploughed back in in various ways into the making of cane and rinse related materials. Uh, and we thank you deeply for that. Please also check out our other podcast, which is uh, Sound of Play, and it's uh, our love of video games music. We share normally nine tracks, uh, including listener requests and requests of our guests. And uh, there'll be music in most shows from the 8-bit, 16-bit and beyond and modern music eras in an eclectic selection. Uh, And it's a lot of fun. Uh, It's one of those shows where I think um, people didn't get the appeal until they listened to it. And then they listened to it and they realized that Sound of Play is every bit as much worth listening to as uh, this here Kane and Rinse podcast. Please review, rate and best of all, subscribe to both of the shows. Uh, on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcast from, Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, tune in. Thank you for listening to that. And now joining me, Leon Cox, in issue 253, are returning after, I didn't realise, a six-month hiatus, it's Mikhail Croder. Good to be back. Oh, well, yeah, uh, that's, that's a, it's a terrible oversight on my part. But, but as we were discussing beforehand, uh, you joined the crew kind of some way into last year's shows and uh, a lot of things were fully booked. But uh, from this year, you are, along with Leah, the new members of our team uh, and uh, you're going to be on plenty of shows coming up. So uh, excellent stuff. We welcome you again. <laughs> and also returning uh, for the first time in a while, is our regular irregular guest. Always good to have him on. It's Dan Clark. Hey, it's great to be back in these plush surroundings of the Cane and Rinse studio again. I've forgotten how big it is. <laughs> yes, roomy and luxurious. Uh, I actually imagine that you're in your hobbit hole, aren't you? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, that's good to know. Uh, so yes, um, we are talking Contra. Now, I just wanted to quickly address the fact that sometimes on Cane and Rinse we cover 
a whole franchise in one show and sometimes we cover one show uh, one game in a show or a couple of games now there's no hard and fast rule on this it's really down to what i think the level of interest or enthusiasm is uh, for uh, individual games within a franchise whether we're realistically likely to return to a series in the future which say for instance with Super Monkey Ball I didn't think that there would be the appetite to cover the games after the original two uh, in individual shows however in the case of Contra uh, there are some really interesting installments in this franchise going down the years there's the famous uh, Super Nintendo and Mega Drive installments there's uh, there's an M2 version on the Wii there's a way forward technologies game on the DS and there's all sorts of um, titles uh, some inordinately challenging to complete as well on the ps1 and ps2 so uh, we've got all that to look forward to but the plan is long term not this year but in the future hopefully we'll come back and the next podcast would be about the super nintendo and mega drive um, versions of the game Um, because uh, with contra and super contra we are documenting the well, the one and only arcade sequel, uh, Super Contra. Uh, Contra started as an arcade game, and I know a lot of you, particularly uh, American listeners, will be more familiar with the NES versions of these games. Uh, fortunately, because I'm way more uh, familiar with the arcade version uh, versions, um, we have some excellent correspondence from our community regarding the Famicom NES versions. So uh, that will be covered off too. Now, it wouldn't be Kane and Rince if we didn't do a bit of history. Uh, so while I couldn't find definitively what the first uh, game in the genre was, uh, I felt that you can trace back the idea, the concept of run and gun to the top down games. Uh, Wolf of the Battlefield or Commando, as we know it, from Capcom. Then came uh, a sort of clone with some innovations, Ikari Warriors, the SNK game in 86. And then Konami did their own uh Wolf of the Battlefield type game in Jackal, which in which you drive a Jeep rather than a man. Uh, and Jackal is one of my all time favorite coin ops. I think it's an absolute classic. I've never finished it. I've only ever got about halfway through or or thereabouts. It's uh, it's it's another really challenging one. But um, I've played that to death uh, in various ways over the years. So I think then, um, and Dan McKeel, feel free to jump in, correct me, or, or if you've got any other examples, but the other games that I think are relevant in this uh, scenario for the genre are probably the side-scrolling games that are more like spaceship shoot-em-ups, but where you control a man. So you've got Baraduke, which is the first one that I'm really aware of, unless you go back to, say, Berserk, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a Namco game. And then uh, Capcom kind of souped things up as they uh, they, they always want to do uh, with Hyperdyne Sidearms which was a a game in which you played sort of mech guys in suits and you could shoot both left and right as the screen scrolled, both horizontally and a little little diagonally as well, if I recall. Yeah, there's some verticality to the levels in there, I think. Mm -hmm. There is. There's some bits where you like go down a pit, isn't there, and stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, And then perhaps the most relevant predecessor is uh, Russian Attack, uh, as it's known in the US, certainly. uh, But Green Beret was its original name, and that was Konami's first run and gun although it was more of a stab and gun because although there were you could pick up uh shooting weapons in it um you actually 
well, if unless you were knew exactly what you were doing, you did a lot more stabbing than you did shooting. Uh, and that was also a, a previous example of Konami taking a sort of a situation from real world US politics at the time. Not exactly, but but influenced by on a mechanical level. I feel like I've always experienced or uh, viewed Green Beret more as a military themed uh, Spartan X or Kung Fu Master. Actually, more yeah, of a beat them sure, up with sure. a in which you are carrying a, a long shank. That is also a very good point, yeah. Uh, it, it kind of, um, it sort of melds the two genres together in, in that way, yeah. Um, there is more stabbing than gunning, as I say, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and I, I think... It was known in, as Green Burt um, by a lot of the 8-bit magazines in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, there were lots of clones of that one, things like Bazooka Bill on the BBC and stuff like that. Of nice. course, this was the days when this, these were the days when um, everything just got cloned rotten. Uh, and we'll talk a little about uh, a bit about appropriating licenses in the case of uh, Contra itself. Uh, Rolling Thunder was one of the earlier uh, side-scrolling games I remember playing where you were on foot and shooting. Uh, it was much more pedestrian in its pace. Uh, you mm. were this uh, lushly animated anime uh, super spy. Um, and it had multiple... Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan uh, of this. Uh, it came out... There was, a, there was a compilation, Namco compilation. It came to the 360 at some point and I played it all over uh, again and I play it on MAME. Um, but yes, no hand-to-hand, all shooting. Um, it's a game of learning sequences very much. So it's a, it's a game where you get it right or wrong and if you get it wrong, you die. Uh, perhaps then... Another of the most relevant ones is the Konami game again, 1986, called Jailbreak, uh, or to give its original title, Manhattan, spelled incorrectly, 24 Buncio, uh, which documents a jailbreak. Uh, and you play a cop uh, taking down the uh, the escaping criminals with uh, extreme prejudice. Uh, now, I was never a big fan of this game. I think, if I recall correctly... It's sort of slightly isometric rather than side-scrolling, but it was... Was it four-way only? I think it didn't have... Di- or was it one of the home versions didn't have diagonal movement? I, I distinctly remember uh, it being quite restrictive to play. Yeah, it was quite clunky feeling. I'm not sure if that is because it is four-way, but it certainly doesn't have the sort of freedom of movement that that we'd get used to over the years after. Yeah. Uh, Rygar came out around the same time as... Contra, I think, as well. But before that, there was another sci-fi uh, side-scrolling run-and-gun game, which absolutely, to me, looks like a, a predecessor to, to Contra and perhaps is unfairly overlooked a lot of the time, probably partly because of its name, uh, which was Zaned Slina. Um, Fantastic name. <laughs> it's a great name. What, what it means, I don't know. It was translated to Solar Warrior in the US and Soldier of Light in the UK, uh, although I definitely saw Zaned Slina coin-ops uh, in Brighton as, as a kid. And that was by Technos, who, of course, also made Double Dragon, which was a game that did an enormous amount to popularise the uh, progressive beat-em-up. And we'll be covering some Double Dragon games over two podcasts later this year in Cane and Rinse. And yeah, Konami went on to, um, you know, do a lot of run-and-gun games as the, the genre kind of really took hold. Uh, famous examples would, I suppose, include um, Sunset Riders. That was some time later. Mystic Warriors as well. Uh, and Ca- yeah. Cowboys of Moo Mesa, for, uh, for those in the know. Right. right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Sunset Riders was definitely the most famous one. And a super significant one, of course, is the fact that 
in the end, Konami actually got the the Aliens license and made uh, in 1990, I think it was, or 89 or 90, four <laughs> years, three or four years after the movie came out. Uh, and some years after they'd ripped off all the Giga Aliens in Contra, they got to do their own <laughs> Alien game and then took massive liberties with everything about uh, aliens, um, especially some of the enemies and bosses in that game, but uh, but it had it had its charms as well as its its nonsense. I think games like Commander, Wolf of the Battlefield, and Ikari Warriors, I've always seen more as uh, top down shoot 'em ups yeah. uh, rather than running guns. Yeah. Uh, even though you control a ground bound characters and you have to do, deal with uh, objects and obstacles on the ground as opposed to just flying over them like you would in like like let's say Xevious or yes. games of that ilk. Um, and the other games also have very much footings in other genres of subgenres. And Contra is very much a groundbreaker. It's it's very much uh, a new style of of game because there's mm-hmm. nothing really quite like the, uh, like it that came before it. Also, Rolling Thunder and Zane Selina might have been the closest ones, but those games mm-hmm. only featured. Uh, uh, shooting in one direction, just straight straight ahead. Say if we do uh, just nominally include the earlier top-down games as, as run and gun in the sense that you are literally running and gunning. Um, the thing, the difference that this perspective made, the side-on perspective, was that obviously when the enemies exist on the same two-dimensional plane, you didn't have the whole issue of, of aiming in the eight, you know, the eight directions, or in fact, in Ikari Warriors, I think it was even more, wasn't it? Because you had the spinning top controller, yeah. which allowed you to aim possibly, was it eight? Or, no, maybe it was only eight still in, in Ikari Warriors, actually. Mm-hmm. But but the, the, a lot of the gameplay was about lining up your shots, whereas in this game, if you're on the, the right level, uh, or even sometimes not, it's uh, it's easier to actually make sure that you're you're taking out the enemies. I mean, yeah, it leads to, to quite, you know, substantially different gameplay. Um and uh, yeah, like those games as well, Contra throws uh, enormous amounts of enemies at you. I don't actually know what the the sort of the the number of uh, enemy sprites on screen at any one time is, time is limited to. Uh, I don't think it, it's it's uh, compared to some of the later games in the series. I think it's relatively small, but um, as soon as you kill one, you know, generally more will appear. Yeah, uh, that's how and, it keeps the challenge. And there up. are a lot of uh, projectile-based attacks as well. Rather than just yeah. uh, mooks that run into you, so in in that sense, I think it was the most perfect combination of uh, shoot 'em up action and platforming side scrolling. Now, one thing that uh, we can't ignore and uh, we don't want to because it's interesting um, is is the naming controversy. Uh, so the game came out in Japan uh, as Contra, uh, although the the original Japanese title screen has. Uh, Kanji or kat- uh, Katakana, I'm not sure which. I think it might be Kanji. Um, presumably it's the sounds of Con and Tra. Uh, but the game was renamed to the basically meaningless sci-fi sounding Grisor in uh, Europe mm. uh, originally. And uh, in the arcades that was, but then the Probotector name was used uh, in the US as well and Europe. Uh, not the US. Not the US. Yeah, okay, yeah they had Europe Contra. It's uh, from the NES onwards, wasn't it? I think. Yeah, and they went away from that again uh, after that. But uh, if we cover future future games, uh, we'll talk about that. But yes, Probotector lasted a little while. Um, Probotector, Robot Protector. So the whole issue with the Contras were that mm-hmm. it was a group of soldiers uh, in Nicaragua that uh, 
Ronald Reagan's US government basically funded during the Cold War to rise up against the establishment. Does anyone know the politics of this better than me? I was very young and I've never studied politics, but I, I was remember... very young too. But I remember Manuel, Manuel Noriega was he the um, their side? But I think yeah. it was, it was, they were trying to overthrow him. Yeah. So apologies for our lack of understanding of the situation. But the point was that it, the the word contra was politically loaded, and while Konami uh, distanced themselves from from any connection, it was noted that one of the music tracks is officially called uh, Sandinista. Uh, which uh, where the Sandinistas were actually the um, socialist party who the Contras were fighting, the Iran Contras. So uh, it, it looked a bit dubious. Now we'll come on to the subject matter of the actual game, which, as I sort of alluded to, is basically aliens. Um, so uh, it seemed a bit unnecessary. But I do remember that people were, yeah, a little bit, yeah, they were, they were antsy about using the Contra name. And also there was the extra case. Uh, and we've heard, we've, we know about this from many games over the years. Uh, the German market at the time, still, still to some extent, um, like the Australian market, sensitive to certain depictions, normally of human on human violence. And as such, sprites were heavily modified and the backstory to be more, uh, more automaton based rather than, rather than carbon based life forms killing each other. So we're talking about the same game when we talk talk about the three uh they danced a little bit around the contra name in in subsequent games um yeah so it's a weird one because for years as a kid this game was called grizor as far as i was concerned i only learned at some point further down the line that it was actually called contra uh and i wasn't even i don't think i was even aware at first that grizor had a sequel called Super Probo Tector <laughs> Alien Rebels because why why would it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it started a bit of a mess, really. Uh, Mickey, I think you've got something to say on this. Um. Yeah. Um. Well, it delves a little bit into uh, what we were probably going to go later into our personal history. Um, sure. But um, it was one of the main reasons why I actually didn't really mess with the series from uh, from early on because mm. um, I I was uh, an, an Anomaly, uh, an anomaly in uh, in Europe. I was one of yeah. I was one of those few Europeans whose first own gaming device was an 8-bit Nintendo, and I had this yeah. little catalog that came with it uh, with upcoming games. And there was a game mentioned in there called Contra, and there were some really cool screenshots in there. I remember the, yes. the gate with the alien uh, boss on top of it, and I was quite looking forward to it. Uh, but the game never came out. And later on, I found this game called Probotector, which, when I played it, uh, when I borrowed it off a friend, looked pretty much almost exactly the same game, but with uh, with different main characters. I really thought it was a stupid name, even then, when I was a kid. I always felt the, the robots were an ill fit, you know? And I, I like my robots, you know? Some of my best friends are robots. Not really, sure. but I, I like my Japanese anime. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, some of your best friends uh, are, are, are anime girls, yeah. Exactly. Uh, no, some, yeah. No, I'm with you. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's robots. Robots are all all well and good in their place. Listen, yeah, machines. Exactly. No, no, it's not your time to rise up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's well, it's this thing where they look kind of like um, macros uh, knockoffs, but uh, rather yeah. diminutive ones, uh, and. You know, in that era, we were used to robot fighting robots, especially being these nigh indestructible, uh, indestructible machines like the Terminator, mm. Robocop, and these little little guys were just keeling over from one shot. It just never made yeah. 
internal it's literally shoehorned in though isn't it it's um yeah an actual shoehorn. i suppose they had to use the same like sprite yeah. sizes and everything and have to try and work whatever they could around it yeah and this as we say this this continued uh on at least uh for one more generation uh in those games we'll hopefully talk about in the future and yeah it was about it was about att- uh, attaining a certain as well as leaving behind the the controversy of contra it was also about attaining certain ratings in uh particularly in the german market and so therefore yeah that happened and obviously there was a lot more of that in the old days we still get the odd name change um just as we're recording this it's very recently gravity rush 2 has come out it's called gravity days in japan why why change it i have no idea um but there you go uh there it is obviously this had more yeah had more knock-on effect um but for the most part, we'll be referring to uh, these games. They, they've since been re-released as Contra and Super Contra on, you know, uh, widely available European formats. So that is that is the series name now. Uh, and we can we can disregard what happened in the past. Uh, so other than that, Mikhail, uh, what are your are you more familiar with the NES version then than the arcade coin up or a bit of both? Uh, a bit of both, maybe more with the uh, with, with the arcade coin-up version. Just a small correction. I don't think there was any ratings or age ratings back in the time. I think. Oh, okay. I borrowed a Probotector from a friend. Uh, I borrowed the SNES one uh, from a store, which I had. So I had, we we me and my brother bought our games there all the time. And the guy would just lend us a game for the weekend, and then if we beat it or we didn't like it, we could just bring it back and pick another one. But I, I never actually owned uh, a Contra Pro Protector Grisor game until Contra came to uh, the Xbox 360, the XBLA. Yeah, excellent. Dan, did you play this in the arcades? Did you get any of the home conversions? Um, I think I played a, a Contra machine in the UK. You know, some arcades would have like imported arcade games because i remember playing it yep, two player with a friend sure. and then not being able to again and wondering if we'd kind of dreamt that there was this two-player yeah. version what was that all about yeah, who knows they took co-op out of grisor uh, but nobody knows why because the hardware was the same obviously other than dedicated cabinet would have had one stick instead of two but most of these games were put into generic cabs anyway so that was just i have no idea yeah who knows so i think i knew it was both names but mostly as Grisor, and I bought it on the Spectrum yeah. as Grisor. Uh, I've right. never got past the first level in the arcades, I don't think. Um, yeah. Like, I, I was a kid, not great at games. Um, mm. And I'd never got past the Fortress at the end. So when I had the home version, it, it was it blew my mind when it was like, oh, it's not just the running along sideways thing. Mm. There's something more to this. And, um, mm. yeah, it was my favourite Spectrum game for a long while I could just complete it time and time again especially as you know the little map we're going to get onto this later obviously but the little map mm. in the corner not a map but um, the moving yeah. moving from sort of block it is a map I suppose isn't it Binding of Isaac's yeah. got it and Zelda's got it that's a map yeah totally um, but uh, the, the excitement of seeing that and knowing that that's where your path was I just found I don't think I'd ever seen anything that did that before so um, yeah I love the thing and then Probotector I I've never really played. I think I played it in the Eastern Electricity board on their nest that ran for 40 seconds before it reset. Um, and right. I knew it was the same game, but I, well, same-ish. But yeah, never really played the Probotectors, just um, Rise or Stroke Contra. So I'm jumping about a bit here, but it seems relevant um, to talk about those 8-bit conversions. Uh, so I didn't have one of the formats that this was on. Uh, Grisor, as it was, came, of course, to Amstrad, Spectrum and Commodore 64. Um, 
I don't believe I play. I may have played the Commodore 64 version briefly at some point. Uh, I had an Atari 8-bit computer and, and it wasn't ported to that. So the version that you played on the Spectrum, uh, the graphics were by Mark Jones, coded by Paul Owens, and the music was by the legendary David Whittaker. Now, I, I know we discussed this uh, briefly already, but um, the version that I remember being the most highly rated of the three of the home computer computer ports was the Amstrad version um, and it was one of those a bit like Renegade or Kunio-kun um, where the Andikari Warriors actually where the Amstrad version had perhaps the most authentic attractive graphics compared to the arcade machine whereas Spectrums obviously tended to be uh, less colourful to avoid attribute clash and because it had fewer colours the Commodore 64s tended to be blockier although you know certain development teams did amazing things on the Commodore 64 visually uh, the Amstrad sort of had characters uh, and sprites and colours which le- which could lend itself to uh, to decent looking ports of these games but uh, but Dan I believe um, you eventually one day you, you got a look at the Amstrad version and realised that perhaps it wasn't quite all it was cracked up to be in some regards yeah um, I mean when it's a tiny screenshot on a magazine advert the Amstrad yeah. version looks fantastic it's um, it really does yeah it yeah. really apes the look of the arcade machine and then I've, I've always thought oh I wish I had the Amstrad version and for many many years um, well not like, not something that I really held onto and was like oh I really need sure. that but, um, but at the time that was the version that like you say that's the version that everyone was saying was the the top of the three all good mm. versions um, yeah. and then I realised when I watched it on a video of it on YouTube a few years ago that it's flick screen and it doesn't scroll so that yeah. kind of changes things somewhat I guess but it's still regarded as, as one of the Amstrad CPC's kind of stronger games in its library and, and one of its one of its more authentic arcade ports even despite that flick screen so uh, so fair play to um, coder John Brandwood and again Mark Jones on the graphics uh, just one curiosity uh, is that um, because this is the sort of thing that people did with licensed games back in in the day uh coder john brad brandwood added a uh, completely non-canon and redundant supplemental end screen which read congratulations you have saved the earth from the evil alien threat unfortunately destroying the heart activates a self-destruct mechanism which blows up the planet how sad <laughs> how sad uh, sounds reads a bit like a donald trump tweet but uh <laughs> Enough, enough of that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, first bit of correspondence for this podcast comes from Blue Weasel Breath, uh, and uh, Blue Weasel Breath posted over at canorince.com slash forum and says those of us of a certain age are old enough to have played the original Contra game shortly after they came out, but young enough where to this day the term Iran Contra brings up images of this game rather than of Ronald Reagan and Oliver North. I spent so many hours on the Contra games that they're an inextricable part of my childhood and part of me cannot shake the absurd notion that the arms sold by the Reagan administration to Iran in the 80s consisted entirely of spread guns with fat red bullets and flamethrowers that sent a single tiny spark corkscrewing ineffectually across the battlefield. The Iran military naturally took the spread guns and left the flamethrowers in the bottom of the crate unused. My friend brought over the 
original game when we were uh, in the middle of third grade and we played it on my NES. I was likely baffled by the difficulty at first, but soon got to where I could easily beat the second level without any sweat. I thought that the first boss, the gate, was badass, although I felt its cheery-looking red spherical bullets undercut its menace somewhat. I remember being blown away by the perspective change in the even-numbered levels. It felt like I was playing an arcade game. I didn't know at the time that Contra originated in the arcades, having that over-the-shoulder view, and it was as close to 3D gaming as I'd ever seen on the NES. Shooting those glowing, jewel-like consoles was satisfying as hell, and it still makes me nostalgic when I watch the footage of those levels on YouTube. When I think of Contra, I think of the Giga-esque design of the alien enemies and levels, which is why I was surprised upon watching footage of the first game after two decades of having not played it that most of the bosses are machines, not giant gross aliens. The waterfall boss and the final level are obvious exceptions, especially the red xenomorph head that shoots fetal crayfish from its mouth. Super C has more of the biomechanical enemies and locales I had in mind, and they start about two-thirds of the way through the game. As I alluded to earlier, one almost infamous feature of the game, especially the original, is the stunning imbalance in weapon efficacy. Everyone who played Contra knows that the spread gun rules all, um, more on this later, while the flame gun in the first game is ludicrously, pathetically, comically inadequate for the task at hand. It was mercifully redesigned into a somewhat better weapon for the second game. The laser gun could have been a good idea with its focused, powerful beam, but it didn't work so well in practice since several fast spread gun shots could more than match its damage and the beam would start over if you tried to fire it rapidly, resulting in a bizarre short-range weapon if you didn't realise what was going on. It was also an entirely unconvincing representation of a laser, so it looked like you were running through the jungle spraying a fire hose. Having one obviously superior weapon works in a game like Doom, when you find all the other weapons first and eventually come across the BFG 9000 as a reward. But in Contra, with the regular power-ups flying in, the implication is that you're supposed to choose whichever weapon best suits your playstyle or the current situation. Instead, the spread gun ends up being always the best gun for every player, and the lesser gun power-ups end up being another obstacle to avoid, like the poison mushrooms in Super Mario The Lost Levels. Lest you end up having to say, as we often did as kids, crap, I lost my spread gun, now I have the water pistol. Overall, the Contra games represent one of the quintessential NES run-and-gun experiences and remain extremely fun, as well as obscenely, brutally tough. Thank you for that, Blue Weasel Breath. Uh, yeah, I, my history with Contra, or Grisor, is that I remember playing Grisor in the arcades, but not for very long. It was one that I occasionally would put a credit or two in and then be reminded of how obscenely, brutally tough it was to quote Blue Weasel Breath, and um, I felt that my, my limited funds uh, back then, I was uh, but a 15-year-old 30 years ago, for that's why we're covering Contra now, because it is almost exactly its 30th anniversary uh, as of February. Um, I would take my money to a game that I was better at, and I generally found that I was less keen on run-and-gun games on the whole uh, when it came to... Comparing to space shooters, you know, I just always preferred the complete freedom of movement that uh, that Gradius or R-Type or Salamander would offer me, whereas being limited by gravity and, uh, you know, levels uh, on the screen, I found, um, yeah, felt restrictive by comparison. So uh, it took me a long time to kind of get my head around it. And I played, I, I should say, I played Super Probotector on the SNES and actually completed that. Uh, which is no mean feat. I don't know if I could do it now. I might have to practice. But the next time I owned the uh, Contra or the original Contra, I think was um, late 2006. So just over 10 years ago, it arrived on Xbox Live Arcade when the idea of downloading 
arcade perfect or near arcade perfect as digital eclipse would allow ports roms um for £3.40. You can still buy it for £3.39 and, and the sequel on XBLA and uh, they're perfectly okay versions. They limit your credits and by default they offer some graphical quotes enhancements that you'll probably want to turn off. Uh, they're not quite smoothing filters but they actually kind of overlay some effects and polygonal stuff on the action which arguably doesn't help you can turn the enhanced music on separately to the graphics though and that actually does have some merit i would say as some quite cool synthesized uh remixes of the tunes and then i also recently bought contra again on ps4 as part of the hamster corporation um arcade archives series and uh, there you have way more options you have multiple rom versions on there um and infinite credits if you want them and you can tweak every dip switch and you know that sort of thing so uh, if you want if you're interested to play contra now i would say arcade archives on ps4 is the way to go funny that i can't recall ever seeing a greiser uh, coin operated machine in the in the late uh, later half of the 1980s because I've, I've, in holland is that yeah exactly because i've seen you know i remember so many games from that era rolling thunder shinobi double dragon Outrun, Afterburner, Galaxy Force, Golden Axe, Gunsmoke, Commando. The mm. list goes on and on and on, but never, I've never seen an actual coin-operated machine of, uh, of Contra or Grizzle around. That's interesting. Yeah, we were saying, Dan and I, uh, before the show, that neither of us ever really remember seeing, or maybe more than once, like a Super Contra machine in the wild. And yeah. I suspect maybe that's partly because of their difficulty level, was um, that they didn't, you know, maybe they just... Although it was obviously a hit and it ended up making money on the on the NES and home computers and you know it was it did well enough for Ocean to want to license it and release it on computers. I wonder if maybe maybe the difficulty pushed people away quicker than it might have done and that saw that arcade operators um, moved them out in favour of other you know boards that people got maybe just a little bit more time on without saying this games are a rip off. You also haven't got the benefit with a European release of. Um it being a sequel because yeah. people wouldn't really know this unless they put sort of Grise or two as a subtitle or something like that. But um, yeah. yeah, true. We definitely did have some uh, some Grisors uh, yeah, knocking was, about. It Brighton. seems fairly common in the UK from what I remember. Um, yeah, it's odd yeah, that it wasn't super in contra. Too. Not so much. Um, no, absolutely not. Mm. This was developed and published by Konami, as we said, and the director is Koji Hiroshita. By the according to Moby Games, didn't do a lot afterwards uh directly worked on bishy bashy special which we always like to give a mention every now and again and some other stuff like survival kids uh these were executive producer roles if if anyone knows about koji hiroshita's um kind of other credits as a game maker uh i'd be really interested to know Mm. um the credits roll at the end uh, and you get little uh, amusing cameo pictures of of those involved and a lot of uh, pseudonyms for people, uh, including uh, special designers Ishiwari Jinbo and Passionate Norio, which I love. Uh, the engineer is Rom Yamamoto. I don't think Rom is his real name. And the graphics are by Kengo, just Kengo. Now, the music, uh, and there's some quite famous tunes in there that uh, you might recognize is uh, Kazuki Muraoka, and you'll hear some at the beginning and the end of this podcast, as always. Now, the arcade board, I think, as far as my research goes, which is quite limited on this front, but it's known as the 
it's basically Contra-based hardware. So it seems like they introduced this particular revision of their Konami arcade hardware for this game. Uh, and it, it was used subsequently in things like Combat School and Fast Lane and Flak Attack uh, and Haunted Castle, which is the first um, arcade Castlevania, of course. Uh, but it doesn't have, as far as I can work out, it doesn't have like a handy name other than Contra. Uh, so that NES version, as I say, I think many of our, uh, particularly our US-based listeners, will be more familiar with. There are a few changes, uh, and I'm really not so familiar with this game. I, I associate this game with the arcade version and the home computer versions, but I know a lot of people uh, that isn't the case. It did come into the Europe, the European territories in December 1990, but it had it had arrived uh, fully, best part of three years earlier in North America and Japan. Um, Bill and Lance no longer looked like uh, distinctly different characters. Um, they're distinguished by their colours. Uh, you can share pl uh, player life stock, which is a thing that co-op games sometimes do, which is always quite neat, I think. Um, they changed some of the icons for the pickups to make them... There, there's a weird inconsistency in the original Contra, isn't there, where some of the pickups look like guns and some of them are lettered names which uh, or you know lettered token tokens which always seemed a bit odd and inconsistent to me rapid bullets uh, and barrier power-ups are more common in the home version but uh, it's still notoriously a very challenging game and the stages are kind of remixed and restructured uh, and it was also of course one of the early nes games to feature the famous konami code which uh, in this game gives you 30 lives instead of the usual three now, the arcade version, which I've been hammering again recently, I've recently completed um, both Contra on 360 and on PS4 and Super Contra on 360 in preparation for this show. Um, one of the forgiving things about it is that when you die, you carry right on. There is no being put back, even like Konami's earlier scrolling shooters where you would get put, you know, put back to a checkpoint kind of thing. Um, does the NES version work the same, do we know, or is it checkpointed? don't think it's checkpointed more than the arcade. As far as I'm concerned, that does uh, make things in, in the same way as you know in the modern game. And here comes the mention of Super Meat Boy, possibly the first one this volume, um, did the thing of allowing you to restart very quickly over and over again after dying very quickly um, this kind of has the same effect obviously you're on a limit uh, and that, that's a fundamental difference especially if you're playing on money in the arcades yeah. uh, but but there it is that, that instant restart takes out a lot of the frustration I think whereas in games like uh, R-Type 2 which uh, you and I were talking about recently Mikhail getting put back to the same checkpoint over and over again would drive you away from the machine at some stage yeah. so the Famicom version uh was uh, as was the case with quite a number of different um, Famicom games. It had some uh, some extra uh, oomph on board on the on the cartridge, um, a custom cart basically, which allowed for cutscenes and a few uh, graphical effects which weren't available, just not possible on the vanilla NES version. Um, and I don't know. There was a Play Choice Ten arcade machine. I don't know if anyone remembers this, which was. Uh, you know, it was a timer-based, NES-based arcade machine. So you put in some money and you would play a chunk of Super Mario Brothers or possibly something like that, or Contra. Um, and I don't know whether it had the NES or the Famicom version in there. But uh, other ports included MSX2 because Konami supported that machine in a big way. Um, there were some notoriously strong ports for the MSX2, but again, it made some, uh, some specific tweaks, uh, but I'm not 
super familiar with that version either. And it also came to MS-DOS in 2002, uh, Konami Collector's Series, Castlevania and Contra, which sounds like a cool disc, which had um, uh, two Contra games and three NES Castlevania games on one disc. The Hamster Corporation... I should say, who who uh, released that PS4 version have been dabbling with Konami arcade ROMs for some time because in May 2006 they released uh, a series of uh, budget-priced uh, arcade ROMs for PS2, starting with Scramble and working their way through various games by uh, Nihon Busan, Data East, uh, Nichibitsu, uh, Technos and others, basically similar games to the ones that they're now releasing on PS4, so that's all good. And then, as we said, it came to uh, 360 in November 2006. Uh, and it's unlockable as part of uh, Contra 4, uh, which was the WayForward Technology uh, developed uh, sequel on the, on the DS. And there was also a Konami Classic Series arcade hits compilation by M2, uh, which means that, yeah, there's two versions of Contra available on DS peculiarly. Uh, also in Japan, the Virtual Console uh, supports MSX2 games. So this has been released on both Wii and Wii U in 2010 and 2014, respectively. One thing that interested me uh, while I was researching this now, it's very recently been, uh, unsurprisingly, the NES Classic Mini has been hacked and people are now uh, uploading dozens and dozens of missing ROMs to their, their NES Classic Mini that they've managed to track down or pay scalpers prices for. But Contra is not one of the 30 games that you get out of the box and nobody seems to really know why. But Super Contra is, right? I think Super C is on there. Super C, yeah. I don't know if it's just the naming thing or whether... Peculiar, not yeah. sure. So let's briefly uh, go over the plot. <laughs> in 2633, uh, in the original game 2633, uh, the NES version changes the setting to 1987. <laughs> so it's a slight difference there yeah. of uh, about 650 for years. The evil Red Falcon organisation have set a base on the Galuga Archipelago near New Zealand in a plot to conquer the world. Two commandos, Bill Mad Dog Riser and Lance Scorpion Bean of the Contra unit, <laughs> an elite group of soldiers specialising in guerrilla warfare, are sent to the island to destroy the enemy forces, uncover the true nature of the alien entity controlling them. Uh, those uh, nicknames only came in with the NES version, by the way. So uh, one of the things that people clock straight away is, uh, especially when you have two players on screen, the uh, the influences are apparent. So this, this game was born in an era when Schwarzenegger and Stallone were box office gold and people went to see films like Rambo, First Blood, Commando, uh, Predator was this was this the same year as Predator possibly so, um, but so maybe it wouldn't have been an influence. But um, this was basically uh, let's take Arnie and Sly and fight the aliens in like in that film Aliens that came out last year on uh, Earth. On Earth, yes, yes. Yeah. Like uh, as many uh, s s you know supposed non-starter alien sequels were were going to 
were going to be. And I believe some of the uh, the less well-regarded Aliens versus Predator movies uh, possibly take place on Earth. So, yeah, that's what this was. Now, there's a famous piece of cover art, which Bob Wakelin, the, the amazing and, uh, and well-regarded Bob Wakelin, who did um, most of Ocean's cover art back in the 80s, did a did a piece for the cover of Grisor originally. And this is from the era, let's let's not forget, we talked about Metal Gear some time ago where Michael Bean out of the Predator was used as a as a as a scan and there were lots of scans of actual um or not scans, that's that's pushing it too far, but digitized versions of Sean Connery and people were in Konami's games. But this was Bob Wakelin for Ocean taking uh, still shots from Predator and uh, and essentially tracing over them. Uh, and he was a talented artist in his own right. Let's, let's not get that wrong. But these were two Arnolds, uh, and one of them is effectively redrawn to look like uh, Sylvester Stallone's face. Uh, and they very much uh, continue with this in the intro to Super Contra on, mm. on the arcade as well. Uh, and, yeah, it's pretty brazen. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But Konami obviously liked it because they uh, they adopted the the same um, official cover art for the for their own releases of the of the NES version later on. So fair it's play. quite brave being legally contentious to have used it in a kind of litigious country, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think nobody was. Uh, they bet must have bet on the fact that nobody was really paying attention. To this, that was uh, so much the case. Yes, yeah, yeah. kids' toys, isn't it? No one cares about that. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, I mean, there's there's this great Twitter account I follow now, which is called, um, I think it's just called Bootleg Stuff. And it's like the things you get, like still now in, in sort of Far Eastern markets and, and places like that, where you get these absolute hilarious ripoffs of Star Wars figures and stuff like that. And presumably some of them get shut down. But back in the 80s, yeah, there were so many brazen clones of of uh, of everything. Um, yeah, just the, the litigiousness just wasn't there. And as you say, I think video games flew slightly under the radar because I, I think there was, they you know, they, they I don't think there was an, an awareness of how much money they were making by ripping off, you know, Schwarzenegger and Stallone and things like that. Plus, yeah. this we should remember this was pre-image um, rights as well because the whole Crispin Glover Back to the Future 2 thing hadn't happened at this stage. Oh, really? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that was 1989, wasn't it? So you could pretty much use somebody's image without without caring too much. By contrast, when Konami did do the Aliens coin-op in 1990, they didn't have Sigourney Weaver's image rights, so they made her blonde and look very different. So, yeah, that's before and after for you. But let's talk about the, the visual side, the art and the animation. Um, obviously, it is... Uh, effectively an 8-bit game from 1987 it's 30 years old uh, but how do you feel about the way it looks uh, going back to it now Mikhail? very colorful playing it now and, and going back to uh, what it might, how it might have uh, felt when it came out it's kind of magical how the whole theme transforms from seemingly sci-fi military to mm. sci-fi horror <laughs> and uh, gigaresque yeah. alien uh, imagery some pretty detailed sprite work for the time yeah. as well and lots going on in the screen and uh, on the main yeah. character sprite as well mm. yeah yeah M more frames of animation than you might have expected obviously um i guess the thing it reminded me of most of the time was um epix's impossible mission sprite um perhaps not quite as many frames of animation as that but this uh, cartwheeling main character yeah uh, so a jump a jump wasn't merely a jump in the style that you might know it from say arthur in uh, in ghouls and ghosts this is a a sort of yeah a freewheeling. He's he's really well. Both your guys are kind of 
um, athletic and uh, yeah, they're almost yeah, I guess early parkour kind of stuff before we knew what that was before yeah. it was even invented. Possibly, do you st- do you st- think this holds uh, holds a visual appeal in in? It still in does to me. You can almost count the pixels in a funny way. Do you know what I mean? It's um, got a really. Yeah. Um, I think it's just the sharp, the sharp combination of sharpness and, um, yeah, I don't know quite what it is, but um, I just love that you can kind of, maybe it's just the detail of the animation, but it's one of those games that gets metallic looking objects right. There's um, mm. a sort of, like R-Type does it well and um, a few other games from the era. Um, and that always strikes me years later, that they suddenly somehow almost make it look shiny or reflective even though it's obviously 3D, not almost yeah yeah you know yeah. that yeah like that bass relief stuff on the um was it bass relief on the um on the metal stuff and yeah there's there's that nice um marriage between the biomechanical stuff and the yeah the the metallic militaristic stuff and i suppose the thing that strikes me playing it now is um compared to some other games of the era that it, it feels like there's a lot less stuff that's reused now it's a very short game and mm-hmm. it's only got five levels i think and and we'll talk about world records in a bit but a normal playthrough will be you know 10 to 15 minutes or something like that um depending on how many credits you've got but it allows for there are certainly areas where you where you do see tiles used over and over of course um memory was limited and and screen ram was limited or video ram or whatever so so it had to happen but um but I think within the set of levels, and obviously the fact that some of them are into the screen as well, that was quite a an eye-opener at the time. The The fact that you went from side-scrolling, uh, which, as we've discussed, was only the idea of a sort of run-and-gun type game was still fairly new and certainly done to, at this pace was new. And then for it to change things up every other level and give you uh, uh, an effectively all, all done in sprites, but you know, 2.5D, effectively 3D over the shoulder. This is an early example of a third-person shooter by modern yeah. by modern standards. You are shooting into the screen or down the screen. You know, this is this is this would influence games like Gears of War. You know, 20 years later, so it was significant. It's proto Cabal almost. Absolutely, like, Cabal yeah. Probably came out a year a year later, yes. and it had the uh, independent aiming with uh, this crosshair and the independent character movement. Uh, yeah, but it's it's pretty much a, yeah, almost a, a prototype for it. Yeah, totally. So Cabal was by Taito, I think, and no, Ta- uh, Ta- uh, Tad Corporation. Oh, Tad. Yeah, oh, same yeah. as Toki, your beloved Toki. Same as Toki, Toki exactly. Yeah, I think that's, Taito that's maybe distribute maybe to- maybe Taito distributed it because um, yeah. like we were talking about Rolling Thunder earlier, Namco game, but Atari distributed it yeah. in the West. So Taito, might be that's why Taito I'm distributed about half the arcade games. Uh, in uh, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, <laughs> yeah yes, and now they are absorbed within square enix yeah uh yeah. yeah and of course that that um created a whole sort of sub genre as well there's that there's one i'm thinking of which is uh, gangster based where you're shooting out windows there's west bank there's um dead angle uh, dead angle of course uh, uh wild guns empire city uh, empire city that's <laughs> the one nice yeah. now i'm 1975 Yes. Okay. Yeah. With, yeah. Yeah. I think that is. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I, I suppose that, that what we're what we think about here is maybe Contra actually inspired, although it wasn't necessarily the very first to do either thing. It was perhaps the most inspirational of not one but two genres. Yeah. Zybots, I think, is inspired oh. by those levels. Yeah. Oh, I love that game so much. Yeah. Absolutely. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's a very cool Atari. It's basically Gauntlet 3D, and and it was that was the intention, um, and that was a game where the, internally they decided to change it from uh, Dungeons and Dragons to robots. I think on a whim, and they they just felt it fitted better or something. So, if you set um, up the controls yeah, right, that does feel like a first person shooter today. It's um, yeah, absolutely, lovely. yeah. That also had a twisty top uh, joystick, uh, yeah. a la uh, Ikari Warriors. Uh, so all round houses. Um, so what we're saying is that that we we like we like the the sprite art and the animation. Um, I think, and yeah, absolutely, I would recommend if you do play this on uh, Xbox three sixty. Uh, neither neither is backwards compatible on Xbox One at this point, I should say. doesn't mean it won't happen in future. Um, but I would recommend turning off the, quote, enhanced graphics uh, because they actually kind of um, splurge all over the the magnificence of Konami's yeah. 80s sprite art. So, They're yeah. <laughs> solid the sprite work. Yeah. Uh, as I say, for me, not as... As offensive as a smoothing filter, but uh, but similarly disrespectful. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, and as I say, the hamster version does have various filters, including scan lines and things like that. So I think it looks quite good. We should also mention uh, we haven't said already. This is a vertical uh, orientate oriented game, isn't it? Yeah. So it's sort of odd in a way that a horizontal, what is a mostly horizontally scrolling game is vertically oriented, but it's so that the levels have verticality to use yeah. a modern buzzword. Uh, it's so that you've got sort of three layers, isn't it? Of it, or th- Is it three maximum that any one time? I think there's, there's top, middle and bottom effectively, but obviously on the, the second level, you're actually scrolling up the screen like rainbow islands, aren't you? Yeah. So it's throwing a lot of ideas in the mix. It's interesting because there have been a couple of uh, occasions throughout arcade games history where I felt that maybe they just had a lot of vertical or uh, oriented monitors laying around or cabinets. Uh, yeah, and, and yeah. they kind of stuck with it, even though it seems unintuitive uh, to the genre. Capcom published uh, vertical scrolling shooters with uh, a 4x3 uh, horizontal yeah. orientation as well, for example. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I think Giga Wing is one of those. Yeah, G- Giga Wing, Mars Matrix, and yeah. even the uh, 1944, I think. Uh, right. A couple of those games. Yeah. Strange times. Well, it does at least mean that when you do play those on um, on a home screen, you don't have to reorient your <laughs> your, your monitor. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and you haven't got it kind of uh, compressed into one tiny little window in the middle of the screen, but uh, not that that's a big problem. Would that make it a happy accident, the um, sort of sub-game almost that Blue Weasel Breath alluded to, where it makes avoiding a power-up harder if there is less width, I suppose? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, another thing this brought to games, which, uh, again, wasn't... I say it brought it. I, I don't believe it was the first at all, but uh, something that it added or allowed the player to do here is to drop down manually between levels so you don't have to wait for a... Um, you don't have to wait for a ladder, say, to yeah. to drop down. You can actually you can be walking on a solid platform and make a decision that you're on you're at the wrong height. Normally, the the decision is because there are eighteen red fiery bullets of death coming your way, and so you need to drop down. Uh, obviously, most of the most of the enemy bullets in this game are targeted, so I think there is a very distinct difference in gameplay between games that. Uh, that just fired uh, random projectiles all over the screen at you and those which 
uh, tended to home in on the player, and this is definitely one of the one of those. Mm-hmm. The sound, I think, is also uh, still quite striking. The jingles, I think, are particularly catchy and memorable. I love the end of level sting. I think it's fantastic, uh, and the opening level tune is a is a bit of a classic. There are some tunes which uh, live less strong in the memory, and of course, with a game this tough and this short, you really need the opening tune to be a bit of a belter and i think this one is mm. uh it's not necessarily something that i would just uh, stick on my ipod and listen to walking down the street but as an accompaniment to an 80s side-scrolling run-and-gun action game it, it ticks all the boxes for me how about you chaps yeah it goes very well with the uh, explosive action yeah it's good gaming music solid get you pumped uh, right from the moment you press start at least as important is the is the, ba- the battle noises, the sounds, the cacophony. Um, so this game doesn't have much, if anything, certainly the first one in the way of sampled speech or anything, does it? It's pretty much uh, it's pretty much all chip-generated noises. But I think that uh, Konami was just, for me, it was just so good at, uh, at making incredibly appealing sounds. Um, even from Konami coin-ops, even from the noise that you got when you put a coin in, it was like, yes, this is something I want to play. Um, and uh, yeah, the one cre- you know the one player credit noise, the uh, the 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 game over sounds, and uh, and every explosion in between seems spot on. Uh, on this topic, Blue Weasel Breath again says one of the things that sticks with me most about the gameplay of Contra is oddly the funny little chirping sound it makes when your bullets hit a tough target and cause damage. Presumably, this sound was meant to simulate the chink of bullets hitting metal. At least it sounds that way to me, even though it makes the same sound when you hit alien flesh. For whatever reason, I found this sound very satisfying as a piece of feedback and it definitely contributed to the fun feel of the game for me great sound that isn't it? a little sort of tink I can, you can hear it in your head yeah. just thinking about it is, yeah, um, totally. yeah. is what sums it's up the a, game. Yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about so it's, it's a good observation there's a lot of pew pew kind of noises in there as well though yeah a lot of a lot of sh- yeah. shrill sh- chirps and, yeah yeah yeah, and the weapons each have their own uh, kind of personality to them as well uh, yeah. as well as and let's let's get into this. The the whole power ups thing um, is absolutely key to playing this game well. Uh, and Blue Weasel Breath alluded to it earlier that the spread gun is generally the one that one thinks of. If anyone has played a bit of Contra as being the one that you need for most of the time, however, uh, we've done a little uh, a little research on this and uh, the the kind of the, the best, fastest world record playthrough that I've found footage of and record of is a four minute, 21 second run, 21.24 seconds by uh, somebody called Adam Barker from Ontario in Canada. And he exclusively uses the laser. Yeah. I wonder if to to play it the way he does it's it's one of those speed runs that's fairly mesmerizing to watch uh and it works on a number of levels because it also shows you just how rather than being a a flood of chaotic carnage this game is actually thought out to the nth degree like the designers decided exactly how many enemies there would be on screen at any one time and what their positions would be and so on and so forth Mickey I know you've been looking into this stuff and you've been also uh, playing the game to get better at it so what have your what's your what's your findings with this yeah I would uh, I would definitely agree but even when I wasn't trying to get better at that I always got that impression from the Contra games that they're very well uh 
planned and also that the attacks, enemy attacks uh, and the patterns are very well telegraphed and they almost always leave leave holes open uh, for you to get through, which is yeah. essential for this type of game. As you've noted before, that um, yeah, because you're you're stuck to a plane instead of having free movement like in a spaceship shooter. Um, yeah, it, it's pretty much essential to uh, to have those kind of openings. It rushes so, you through, doesn't it? It's um, very yeah. directed, like moment to moment. Yeah, the the I think the reason or the, the main reason that Contra has a, a reputation of being so hard. Is it's measured maybe against uh, more against the uh, uh, side-scrolling platform games, and also because uh, of the the one-hit kill. Of course, there's just very, yeah, totally. There, it is very much doable, but there's very little margin uh, margin for error. It makes sense that everybody that's on a mortal level, like like us guys, uh, that we stick to the spread gun as our main weapon because it mm-hmm. makes you not have to deal with a whole lot of stuff if you can just you know you don't have to line yourself up with certain uh, enemy attacks and you can just kind of it's almost like fire and forget and d- focus more on the dodging while your spreads yeah. destroy a whole lot of, a lot of uh, hazards on mm-hmm. the screen so it would make sense for the expert players to use the laser more than that because of the high damage output and as you've I've also watched the same speed run the player was more or less ignoring about uh, 50 to 75 percent of what was going on. He was just never yeah. standing still. He was always moving forward and only taking taking out those threats that he absolutely had to deal with. It makes sense yeah. to use that weapon if you got the game memorized to such a degree that you just focus your fire on those targets that you absolutely need to take out and just keep uh, keep going. Yeah, so so on that, the the things which struck me were well, it, obviously it's a great emphasis that the the jumping in this game is incredibly responsive. Like there's absolutely no delay to yeah. or and the movement. It almost like, seems it's, to it's jump super, before super you crisp. press the button. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like some kind of psychic magic. Um, <laughs> the, the second thing that struck me is that uh, yeah, as you say about this world record run that we watched, uh, it doesn't even entertain the idea of combating the first two enemies on each stage the the game the game spawns regularly like a couple of soldiers that run towards you at the start of the stage i'd never really clocked the fact that you have literally like one second of invincibility at the start of each stage which you know is nice touch so you don't need to you don't need to shoot them just get going just get i mean obviously if you're on a speed run that it's different to if you're on a score attack in which case this game's actually um it's probably quite favourable to uh, score attacks in the sense that it will keep spawning enemies at you. Yeah. Um, only the, the every other level has a time limit, so you can't do that forever on on those stages. But I'm not sure if there's any. Is there anything to stop you? That normally these games used to have something which would stop you from hanging around because it's an arcade game. So, uh, so there must be. Yeah, type of thing. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know what this game has to because I've never. You know, I've never got the courage to just hang there and just yeah. keep shooting enemies. So, um, no, yeah, I'd be interested to look into that. I think it's just a timer. Another of our correspondents says about actually you can do a decent amount of damage with the spread gun. And, in fact, all of the uh, the guns, uh, you, you can kill most things with the guns with, with a quick hammer of the, the fire button. But 
there's that slight curiosity about the spread gun, which is that if you rapid fire, essentially stops it from working as effectively because it stops it from spreading out across the whole screen and stops the bullets from getting to their optimum or maximum size. I don't know if the hitbox expands on the bullets as they go across. I mean, if they're if they're there, they're big enough normally anyway. Yeah. Um, but the, the laser gun, like, yeah, this guy is just... It's about never missing a shot, really, is the thing. Yeah. It's about always hitting, knowing exactly where every enemy is going to come on, hitting the fire button at exactly the right point. But a lot of the time he makes it look so easy. I know it's, yeah, that's kind of what it's about. But for instance, the first end of level boss and and many of the subsequent bosses, again, he doesn't even engage with them, really. He just runs straight to the, the heart of the matter and fires the laser into it at close range and doesn't press the button again because, again, that cancels out the effect of the gun. Yeah. And he doesn't need to take out the little turrets or the dude hanging above because they're ir- irrelevant to what he's trying to do. So, yeah, I, f- I found that really interesting. Yeah, he, He's already destroyed the base before those, uh, before the, the little dude and the turrets can even start uh, firing at him. That's right. Yeah. And similarly in the corridor, in the first, uh, in, well, both corridor sections, if you hit the right shot on the one target that is essential, you will, everything will die. Everything on screen, you've got these electric barriers and these mines rolling towards you and enemy bullets and, and the enemies come jumping in and spinning on. There's an enemy who gives you a power up on each, uh, some of these uh, areas who wears yellow, but obviously he wants to avoid these. So he doesn't <clears> even want to, he doesn't even want to shoot the guy to spew yeah. out the power up because that will give him something else to avoid. And in fact, not only does he make the exact shot and some of these involve jumping up into the air and shooting in the middle of your, your aerobatic somersault, uh, he'll 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 make the shot and then he'll already be in position for the the sort of mini cutscene to trigger where he's walking to the next stage. But he'll be like taking the racing line, so he'll be on the nearest corner to um, because the the corridor zigzags through the enemy base. Yeah. But because he's going on, a, he's on a time attack mission on a world record run. He's actually minimising the amount of time it takes him to walk down the corridor. I mean, yeah, this is like proper, you know, high level stuff, but I really love watching it. Um, yeah. And it, yeah, it's one of you watch it and you think I could do that because he made it look so easy. And then you try to do it and it's like, oh, <laughs> the enemies are still actually shooting me quite a lot. So <laughs> does he go high at the exploding bridge? Yes. I imagine most do most good players do that. I think so, because if you're in the water, you're slower, aren't you? Yeah, it's almost and... like a sort of uh, not a fail state, but you know what I mean? It's like a, a trick to sort of, yeah, if you make it, you make it. And if not, you're kind of. When I was trying to get good to clear the game within the three credit limit of the XBLA version, I actually yeah. qu- quite quickly learned to uh, drop down in the water and uh, fire from there and keep moving. Even though you can't jump, it's easier to deal with stuff above you than it is to deal with stuff below you. So I was just uh, aiming my gun in a 45 uh, degree angle and just kept on shooting everything uh, until yeah. I reached the shore. So that's what I did every single time after that. Okay. So again, this sort of illustrates the fact that even with this uh, potentially four minute long uh, run and gun game, there there is uh, there is more here than meets the eye because that's you playing it for survival to try to get as far as possible on yeah. a limited number of credits. He's playing it, the guy we're talking about, in a completely different way to do it as fast as possible. But again, if, if we were going now, when you complete the game, I think you get 100 million points either way. So that's going to be a decent... But obviously, if you're going for a real score attack, you're going to need to want you. You're going to have to get that and everything else. So, like the hamster version on the PS4 has fully working online international leaderboards, and 
not only that, but there's a specific high score mode which limits the options so that you know you're always on a level playing field with everyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also a caravan mode which they include, which is where uh, it's a kind of traditional Japanese thing where it's about getting as many points as possible within a uh, within a specific time limit, which is you know great for a quick blast. Um, I love all that stuff, and it's brilliant that I think Hamster Corporation are um, are putting all these options in the PS4 versions, which are widely available. And I know some people think that they're overpriced. So, for instance, this would currently cost you on the European store or in the English in the English currency five pounds seventy nine, um, which you know when you compare it to the fact that you could buy it ten years ago for three pound forty, seems a little steep, but it is worth. Uh, noting that these games are very often in digital sales for sort of three pounds, three pound twenty are quite often. So worth looking out for those. Um, and, and yeah, yeah, it's great to see that uh, uh, these ports of arcade games are you know being treated with reverence, and that only yeah. helps only helps to uh, increase their perceived value rather than just than just having rum dumps uh, for sale. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, on the subject of emulation, it's something. It's something that's so hard to kind of uh, encapsulate and explain um, what the differences are. We've talked a lot before about the kind of the the different teams who who put these things together, and there was um, there's uh, among the real hardcore community uh, for for these things. There was a lot of um, ill feeling really towards uh, Digital Eclipse and, and Backbone Entertainment for their uh, for their sort of slightly subpar emulation. And it's the sort of stuff where, you know, to be honest, when I wasn't looking for it, I didn't really notice it. Having not played a particular game for 20 years or whatever, and then playing it on Xbox 360, you think, hey, this is pretty decent. You yeah. know, it's just like I remember it. But then if you play if you play a version by uh, M2 or Iron Galaxy or Hamster, you go, oh, yeah, it was more like this, actually. And it's mm-hmm. it's it's such hard things to put your finger on and explain but it's like it's the crispness of feel and the crispness of the sound and uh, I don't know guys how would you sort of explain this this phenomenon most of the time the digital clips or backbone versions are emulated well it's just that that's that's pretty much it they're they're very bare bones and uh, yeah. they don't have a lot of options to make the image look nicer that too. yeah mm-hmm. Just, just options to have, make the image look less awful. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's stuff like um, on the 360 version. You know, I'm playing it through the same hardware, but uh, but the the sound on the the digital Eclipse version sounds all very. Um, it's it's a little murky and centralized. Yeah. Whereas on the on the hamster version, it's very crisp and stereo and stuff like that. I'm not actually sure if the original Coinot was stereo, but. Uh, uh, I'm sure there's the option there to have it authentic if if it isn't, because that's the kind of thing they do. So talking about the uh, the Super Play video uh, or videos, I'm sure there are other ones out there. I may we may not have even seen the current world record. I'm not entirely sure, but uh, the bosses uh, are made to look like uh, a trifling matter by our Super Player, and um, that is to say that again, if you don't let them get on top of you and you know kind of what's going to happen. They're not necessarily that difficult, but how many times there's there's the the little um, kind of I don't even know what you call them the little emplacements you you tend to be shooting up the screen at these bosses uh, on a static screen and these sort of compartments open up and fire three way bullets at you and sometimes there's more than one of these compartments 
how many times do I position myself in the wrong space, wrong place, <laughs> ever so slightly, uh, and then in some cases even jump into my death uh, just because I'm you know not a greater player. Uh, incredibly frustrating, but actually, if you if you do know where to stand and you know when to shoot, you can kind of you can kill these bosses off in literally two or three seconds. In in many cases, which targets you need to prioritize to take out first? Yeah, I mean that's another thing that's perhaps unusual about these the the contra games is is this sort of uh, there are other examples I I, I concede, but uh, but a game where you can go straight for the heart of the matter or whether you take out all the peripheral targets. Yeah. Uh, to start with, um, this kind of risk reward thing. Like my instinct when there's a screen full of glowing red orbs is to kill them all and <laughs> and get the points and yeah. then kill the boss. But actually by that stage, like for instance, um, the second boss, I think it is, starts firing these kind of homing orbs at you. Yeah. Uh, and they're a real pain uh, yeah. if you let them kind of come to life, whereas you can kind of avoid that situation by killing it much quicker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, it's it's the it's the the way you're playing it is is relevant here. And for most people, they'll be playing it I guess just to get through to the end if possible or, or yeah. play for as long as possible. But if you're going for different achievements, then, then you've got to think, think tactics, I guess. And it comes almost naturally with a lot of repeat play. That's, that's uh, what I, why I was very thankful that I had to force myself almost to clear the game within uh, the three given credit limit. It's yeah. that I've, rather than uh, firing it up in main, main and playing it, you know, credit feeding all the way through it just to yeah. get to the ending and and come on here and say that I've completed the game. Uh, I was forced to replay a lot of sections over and over again. And things just start to click after a while and you start to know what, what targets you need to prioritize, where the safe spots are. And it's amazing how uh, over maybe a week of play I was able to breeze through a, a lot of sections later on in the game that I initially had so much trouble with. Yeah, absolutely. Do you jump less now than you did when you first played it? I would, like, is that definitely mm. yeah. one 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 thing that really amused me was in the tunnel sections. Uh, if you jump at the time when stuff explodes on the screen, even though the explosions are supposed to be in the background uh, at the the far end of the tunnel, you can still hit by them if you jump up and uh, <laughs> and overlap. Oh, is that with them. what's happening? Yeah, but sometimes right. I was dying. Like I don't even know why I'm dying. I just blew up everything and I'm losing a life. And I figured out I was touching the explosions in the background. <laughs> Thirty years and I still hadn't worked that out. Thank you. Yeah. For yeah. that, Mikhail. I still haven't worked out also in those tunnel sections. Sometimes um, you just, because you can, uh, we haven't mentioned that you can crouch. Uh, you can crouch yeah. throughout the game, um, but it's, I, I guess it's particularly relevant in the tunnel sections because you're ducking under stuff. But sometimes in the tunnel sections, you get stunned temporarily. Uh, and I've never quite worked out what it is that does that. You press up uh, where uh, when there's an energy barrier in front of you. Yeah. Don't press up. Never press up in the tunnel sections. <laughs> Okay. I've been playing this on and off, obviously, with a huge gap of 20 years, but I've been playing this on and off for 30 years and I've completed it and I'm learning all this basic stuff about this, you know, ostensibly incredibly simple uh, game, uh, even as I'm talking about it now. That's that's why it's so interesting to me. Yeah. So our next piece of correspondence from the forum is from Craig. 
who says, coming from England, my memories are of Probotector. And I vividly remember my brother having an A3 poster of the amazing box art from Total magazine on his wall. Later, I'd find out about the original name and characters, but they never seemed as cool to me. And really, if aliens were to try to take over the world, who would you send? Two soft and fleshy meat bags with families or sleek, awesome robots? That's his justification for, uh, for Probotectoring. When I was young, my brother had a friend, which meant as a little brother, when they played together, I tagged along too. This friend was a massive liar. We all knew someone like that growing up, boasting of uncles with endlessly interesting CVs. But this guy wasn't just a fantasist looking for attention. He was also a mean liar. He wouldn't only lie to boost himself up, but to belittle and deceive. This friend so happened to have Probotector, which of course he claimed he could finish easily without the Konami code. So most of my memories are playing together around his house. I remember the spectacle, the bright graphics and cool weapons, but never really being any good at it. People often use this game as an example of a great game to play with friends, which is as true as saying Monopoly is a great activity to bring your family together. It's a game that actually come, becomes more difficult with two players, with many accidental deaths coming from accidentally or not jumping too quickly on the vertical section. This, combined with quarrels over weapons and the ability to donate a life to your friend after often deteriorating into your friend's stealing lives, Probotector can ruin friendships just as quickly as the infamous property board game, but at stunningly efficient speed. Playing with this friend was infuriating. Every weapon he'd take, he'd take a life at every opportunity, despite having apparently beaten it by himself without the extra lives code. Every vertical section he'd rush through with little to no regard to whether that meant certain death for his gunning partner. What made it worse was his half-hearted attempts at lies to cover his actions. Oh, sorry, my finger slipped. Oh, I thought it was my turn to get the gun. What? No, I didn't steal a life. I don't need them. I still enjoyed it, but even as a naive young boy dealing with a cool kid two years my senior, I could still see through his lies. What a swine. Thank you for that, Craig. I'm sorry for your pain, uh, Probotector. I guess you were playing the PAL version as well, which we can assume is probably uh, running at uh, PAL speeds. Here also, I believe talking about the NES version mainly, but also some other bits and bobs, uh, is our friend Hypnocrit from the forum, who says, I actually didn't like Contra the first time I played it. I heard its reputation around the schoolyard, so when I saw it for rent, I knew it was good, but something about it didn't click when I got it home. I actually convinced my parents to return to the rental shop and exchange it for, di for a different game entirely. I couldn't imagine spending the whole weekend with this weird jungle game. Some unknown time later, I of course tried it again and liked it. I played Super C at a friend's house as well, ensuring I was a lifelong fan who would move on to Contra 3, Shattered Soldier, etc. Of course, those games never quite matched the classic entries, despite the increased graphical spectacle. Once I got to Konami and began work on Contra 4... This is our friend Tom Hewlett, who works at WayForward Technologies. Uh, I had an excuse to really dissect Contra and Super C and learn what made them tick. All the little tricks that people might not notice, background changing to black for each boss, allowing more tiles to be used for detailed alien monstrosities and so on. They all show how genius NES-era Konami was, managing to get this level of arcade performance out of the humble little machine. The original Contra, and to a lesser extent its sequel, simply unmatched in the genre. Other series come close, but Metal Slug will never overtake the joy of nabbing that spread shot and mowing down every enemy in the level until you make one tiny misstep. It's a shame that the original is banned from Virtual Console and NES Mini. It deserves to be played with a proper controller. How else are we to break them in? Yeah, so Tom may know something there. 
uh, as an industry insider and somebody who's worked on the Contra franchise, uh, he actually described Contra as being banned from Virtual Console and NES Mini. Now, it is true that uh, that Contra, as we mentioned earlier, not on not only not on the the NES Classic Mini, but also not on Nintendo Virtual Console, either 3DS or Wii or Wii U. Wasn't it on a Wii uh, Virtual Console at one point? Nope, I don't think so. Only wow. the only the MSX2 version. It's a bit of a mystery. I'd love to hear from anyone who knows. But Especially then if, as it is on the DS as um, Unlockables in Contra yeah. 4. Well, exactly. Exactly, right? Yeah, and, and, a, and a Konami compilation. So, I don't know. Seems very odd. Whether that banned word is accurate, I don't know. Tom, if you know more, please tell us. So, Super Contra. This, uh, as I say, is really the one and only official arcade sequel for future sequels were all home console games other than handheld games, I guess. Uh, It arrived February 1990 and in North America a couple of months later uh, as Super C. In 1992, two years later, Probotector 2 Return of the Evil Forces (laughs) came to the European NES. Thanks for that title. (laughs) Uh, so apart from anything else, the sequel didn't include the Konami code. Uh, it did the same thing with robots and sprites as uh, Contra and Probotector, uh, again, for similar reasons. I guess the name, partly the Iran-Contra thing still relatively fresh in the memory and the German market stuff that we, we spoke about before. Because the arcade machine uh, featured DPCM samples of orchestra hits, uh, which are, you know, one of the great sounds of the uh, late 80s and early 90s generally that uh, you'd know it if you heard one, if you don't know what we're talking about. Anyone could do a vocal orchestra stab down your talented man. <laughs> I think that's maybe a little bit more difficult than like, because you've got to do lots of sounds at once, haven't you? A whole, that's true. A whole orchestra, yeah. in fact. So, yeah. yeah, that's true. Anyway, Yushi, uh, Yuichi Sakakura reprogrammed the soundtrack for Probotector 2 to ensure the samples would not play out of tune a common occurrence in previous uh, NTSC to power conversions. So, yeah, to do with the clock speed difference, I guess. Uh, Again, there are some changes between the arcade and the NES version, which I'm personally less familiar with. Uh, This also came to PlayChoice 10. And hilariously, and I say this because uh, I I I wasn't even aware that there was an Amiga conversion of Super Contra, but um, Distinctive Software did the dirty. Uh, uh, Unlimited Software Inc. is actually credited as the developer. And this was released uh, on Amiga and PC in 1990. And uh, I had a watch of a video and oh boy. Yeah, it's a real, it looks, uh, this is so unfair because I haven't played it. It may have played perfectly adequately, but to look at, uh, it was uh, not pretty. Check it out on YouTube. It's interesting. They wouldn't even put the names to the gra- like the people who did the graphics. <laughs> the USI artists, yes, the term is used loosely and advisedly. Uh, so, yeah, my history with Super Contra is, I, as I said, I don't remember seeing it in the arcades maybe once. But if it was there, it wasn't for very long. I know I always say, oh, we had all the arcade games in Brighton. And mostly that's true, but there were exceptions. And I feel this may be one of them. Uh, Dan, you were saying much the same thing? I seldom saw it. But when I went back to um, to play this last week, I realised that I'd played quite a lot of it as a kid, um, so I'm not quite sure where that would have been. I, it may have been, you know, Fun Spot in um, New Hampshire in the States. They had a thing uh, where you where you got like unlimited tokens. We were on like a, a trip from uh, like the resort we were staying on did like a kids club and they took us to Fun Spot on one of the days. And it was like you got unlimited tokens for the hour that you were there. So Amazing. if I got quite far in it, then I think it must have been there because I can't see that I would have pumped that many 
credits in otherwise. No, no, too right. Uh, yeah, so really my experience with this, it, it arrived on 360 Virtual Console some months or maybe a year after the original uh, 2007, I think it was. And yeah, I bought it straight away, even though I wasn't familiar with it because, hey, it was another arcade port and I was interested. And uh, I'd never finished it until uh, the run up to this podcast. Uh, I think it's anecdotally often described or thought of as being harder than Contra. Um, I only completed it, admittedly, by ramping the lives up to seven per credit, but I still completed it. Um, and yeah, I didn't find it particularly more difficult than the original overall, I wouldn't have said. So, Mikhail, you've also been having a good crack at this one. Um, yep. Is this also a recent thing for you? Did you come by this in the 360 era or did you manage to play it back in the day? Yeah, I'm going to be very boring. My echoes almost, my story echoes yours almost to 100%. I just... Right. Got it when it uh, came to XBLA. Uh, yeah, and I actually found it quite a bit harder than uh, um, okay. the original Contra. And even though I cleared it within the three credit limit, I still think it's uh, it's much harder. For a while, I was just figuring out maybe it's because I'm less familiar with uh, with Super Contra. I mean, I did play the NES port or Probotector uh, from uh, I borrowed it from from friends back in the days, so or I played it at a friend's house. And I've had uh, uh, the, the XBLA port for a longer time than Super Contra. So I thought maybe it's just because I really didn't play it all that much that it was just the unfamiliarity that made it, made it so hard, uh, so much harder. But when I was trying to get the uh, achievements in the uh, default settings, it was just I had to do it. Uh, so uh, I had to just do the first level over and over so many times just to not lose a life before the helicopter mid-boss or during the hel- helicopter mid-boss. That's one of the achievements. Like, uh, right. G- uh, destroy the helicopter mid-boss without uh, losing a life. And <laughs> I did it in the end because it just hurt yes. me that I didn't have a single achievement. Uh, I'm, I'm not an achievement <laughs> hunter by far, but it just hurt me that I didn't have a single achievement for the game. So I just wanted to <laughs> yeah. get that one at least. And it also helped me to sharpen my skills with the game a little bit, but it was it was really tough. Uh, even though when I cranked up the lives to seven, like you did, mm. I cleared it. Somehow, near the end, it got easier for me, uh, the game. It's, it's the beginning, it's really hard. Because yeah. uh, by the, when the time I reached a final level, I still had seven, maybe more than seven lives in excess because of get, yeah. hit, hitting the... Uh, the uh, score marks for getting extends or extra lives so I, had, yes. I had a whole bunch of lives in excess and i was just suiciding over and over again to kill the final boss because you need to actually keep your distance with uh, with him yeah uh, otherwise you're gonna get uh, murdered over and over again but i had so many lives i didn't care i was just up in his face firing away yeah. losing one life <laughs> after the other and clearing yep. the game that way same yeah yeah, yeah. same here uh, yeah, it's worth saying actually on on the achievements front. I was I it it did it awarded me achievement for completing the game with without the default settings. I thought it was only that it wouldn't upload high scores if you right. weren't on default settings. So um, I certainly got that helicopter without losing a life achievement back in the day. This is one of those interesting games where you've got a, I've got a timestamp now which shows my previous achievement and my latest achievement, and there's almost a decade in between the two of them, <laughs> which is always quite interesting and slightly yeah. terrifying. But yeah, I did, I did exactly the same. But I actually found, um, and I wonder if this is the sort of the traditional um, sort of uh, after focus testing in the arcades, they would often tweak difficulties. Maybe people were getting too far early on 
uh, and and so there's there's difficulty spikes early on, or, or or they just you know it's just that usual thing of the you know they they calculate very specifically with analytics kind of which uh, which minute is the most common minute for players to to walk away from the machine at, and they need to balance that with people putting in in fresh credits and and so on. But I I completely agree. I thought the the last level is actually not nearly the most challenging stage, and and although it throws a lot of creatures at you it throws fewer bullets at you yeah and there's a couple of bits where it kind of surrounds you with these sort of i don't know what they're supposed to be weird yeah. things but if you just keep walking forward and shooting you generally won't die yeah uh, which which was surprising we talked about uh, also uh, away from the show we were talking about the sort of tradition of um, particularly japanese coin-op developers which was most of them back in the 80s uh, traditionally making the second game in a series like substantially more difficult yep. than its predecessor, presumably because, as we saw, uh, it was entirely possible to complete the original in four minutes, 40, 40 seconds. And if enough players were doing that, the average playtime and the average amount of coin that is being put in is not sufficient. So uh, as with games like the notoriously uh, hard R-Type 2 and others, which which I can't think of off the top of my head, but it seems like Super Contra was designed to be a right. Okay, you've all beaten Contra. Well done. Now, try this. I also understand yeah. that it's uh, both. You know, it, it's catering to the arcade operators, but it's also uh, catering to the expert players who are looking for a bigger challenge. It's also flashy enough for the time that it makes you want to plow through it anyway. It's um, yeah. it's that sort of next level yeah. up, isn't it? Like the sort of the six, not the other ones. I suppose they were sixteen bit, weren't they? But um the arcade boards but it's, it's the uh, 16-bit era of home machines so it kind of fits that look and i can see that yeah you'd plow you sure. want to get through it just to see what else they're going to throw at you yeah yeah this game has a more attention grabbing attract mode uh, than than the first game uh with uh, some sampled speech including a uh, a dodgy impression of arnie uh, and uh, and less less of an impression really of of Stallone, but they they very clearly uh, again are characters who are meant to look like those two two action stars. Uh, yeah, sample speech and um, sort of cutscenes. Yeah, keep your eyes peeled. And yeah, and you drop out of a helicopter at the start rather than just appearing on the screen. And uh, yeah, it's a bit more. It's got a bit more flash overall. How do you feel about the the, the look of the game throughout? Um, this certainly leans even more heavily on the whole Giga Alien kind of situation, doesn't it? It does. Uh, but I also felt the first time I fired up that it looked color-wise, it looked very drab, a very mm-hmm. a lot of browns and grays. And um, this also. This game in particular is really testament to how different it can look on your flat uh, flat screen HD uh, yeah, monitor right. and on an actual arcade uh, uh, monitor like a, a CRT uh, te- television because it's it's a night and day difference in this in this games it's uh, the 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 blacks and the color uh, the, the the colors and the, the Kind of the spatial sense that graphics give, give up are completely gone when you uh, play them on the on the 360. Yeah, again, the the hamster versions. Not that there is a hamster version currently of Super C. Uh, allow you to simulate um, things slightly. They have uh, elements, although it doesn't specifically have like a, a phosphor glow setting. Um, the scanline setting gives that sort of impression off. So it does go yeah. some way, although it's 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 never the same. And certainly, um, although I don't do it because of space and money, I would. You know, 
play when playing these games if you could play the original hardware then obviously that is optimal um but then there are sort of layers down uh, of various levels of inconvenience and cost whether it's uh, having a specific pc with mame on it and plugged into a, a cathode ray monitor uh, there are also various uh, devices you can get to, uh, uh, like plug-throughs for HDMI devices, which uh, simulate the look of CRTs on modern screens. Uh, but it's a it's a rabbit hole and a potentially expensive one. Um, and I know that some people just literally don't understand the point. You know, like why would you make your brand new uh, 4K screen look like a cathode ray tube from 1987 or whatever? Yeah. So. <laughs> The edges of sprites were designed with that in mind, though, like shading that was yeah. designed around the limitations of the the fuzz, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I I have a real mixed feeling about this because I actually I always remember, um, you know, back in the day, monitors used to vary wildly in how new and how good they were. So when you went to an arcade, you would you would often play stuff on a monitor that had been magnetized, so it was half purple, or it was uh, the 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 scanning was you know the it was crooked or or um the vertical hole was off or you know all this stuff so i was always at my happiest when i found one which had a kind of brand new you know super crisp rgb plugged monitor so it, you could see every every pixel and so to me sometimes playing these games with every pixel visible is like i feel like it's the the optimum way of seeing them but in another way you're completely right uh there's there's that uh screenshot which does the round rounds from time to time which is of zelda 2's link which uh, it's got the the completely crisp you know pixel perfect one on the left and a fuzzy crt looking one on the right and it's a and it says on the left like this is what young games developers think old games used to look like and on the right it says this is what they actually look like yeah um and you'll see a while a wide variety of attempts at simulating that look i think the strongest one for me so far is there's a i think it's something that you can pick up in super mario maker uh that makes it look like a that makes the whole screen or the whole game go like a cathode ray tube uh and it's uncanny uh, because it's got that typical Nintendo attention to detail. Uh, and they can vary these things, these simulations vary wildly. Um, there's one on the Mortal Kombat arcade collection, which just gives a horrible fisheye look to everything and really unconvincing scan lines across the screen. And it's just mank. But then again, you've got the ones in like the Street Fighter 3, the Iron Galaxy third strike one, which slightly rounds off the screen and, and puts a, a sensitive amount of scan lines in. And it, and it does, a I think, a really effective job of evoking the feel of a cathode ray tube. So One of the best is still to me uh, Final Fight Double Impact uh, options in there. Yes, yeah. yeah, well, we had, we had Andrew Smith of the development team on on the show for that, yeah. and uh, yeah, he was uh, very proud of of the effort that that went into the yeah the whole phosphor glow and distortion that they they did in that. And it is a shame that that isn't something that you can just God imagine if they just put it in the hardware of consoles, yeah. <laughs> so you could just every time yeah. you downloaded a a ROM, you could just switch to retro, yeah. you know, ray tube cathode ray yeah. tube mode. Anyway, it's, it's, that's. It's, it's really something, like you said, it's a rabbit hole. You can really tune and tune to get the effect just right. Because, uh, for example, the example you uh, mentioned, uh, Third Strike, 
for me, the scanline effect is is too pronounced again. So it yeah, comes out, okay. comes off looking as artificial somehow. So there's this, mm-hmm. and it's it differs from person to person also what they find pleasing. Uh, yeah, to the eye, what so. their memories of of the, those yeah. kind of screens are as well, because they were all different by their very nature. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, some of those converters that we were talking about allow you to tweak the settings on a you know infinitesimal level. So yeah, uh, <laughs> but once again we digress into the world of. Uh, but I know I know our listeners like it when we get enthused about uh, this sort of uh, yeah. this stuff that goes alongside. But uh, time is pressing on, so I want to talk a little bit more about Super Contra specifically and some of the tweaks and changes that were made. Uh, Mikhail, what struck you as being kind of uh, changes that were made for positive or negative to the formula? Uh, immediately, I was very uh, enamored by the ability to vary your jumping heights to uh, to such a degree. And it gave a, gave a great extra sense of control uh, as far as dodging bullets went. And of course, then the uh, the tunnel sections were replaced by uh, by top down section for yeah, uh, variety six. Absolutely, a big change for the series, and uh, something I think that kind of hit its real stride on the uh, on the mode seven stages on the on the SNES version that we'll hopefully talk about in the future. But they remind me very much of uh, Capcom's Mercs, uh, which came before this. Yeah. I think was it nineteen eighty nine Mercs? Maybe that was in the that was the the second game, I guess, in the Wolf of the Battlefield series, but wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, Super Contra was um, 88, so... Yeah, yeah. So oh, okay. This, yeah, came, this right. came before Mercs. Um, yeah, okay. And I I was uh, playing uh, Super Contra today before the, uh, before the recording, and I actually really came to uh, the conclusion that I disliked those sections, maybe more than <laughs> the tunnel mm-hmm. sections in uh, the original Contra, because it's... The, the trouble with them is uh, your character movement is quite slow and it's really tough to dodge and weave through uh, a hail of bullets in it. Uh, yeah. It's it's really, really tricky. They're, the sections are not very enjoyable enjoyable to, to me at all. I, I keep backing up to outrun the bullets so they can't reach me because your bullets and the enemy yeah. bullets have limited reach. It's, uh, yes. yeah, it's, it's a little... They're a little bit tedious, those sections, to me. I also have slight issue with i don't think the, the as much as we've overall praised the sprite art and i think there's some great stuff in in super contra as well i think the actual drawing the overhead perspective of the the scenery and stuff is is a little wacky and yeah. it's sometimes quite difficult to tell what's actual what's something that you have you know collision that has collision detection that you can actually walk into or walk past sometimes some of the enemies die but they stay on screen and it's very hard to tell if they're dangerous to the touch generally assume that most things are um and so yeah they they have their moments and i'm a big fan of the earlier games in the in the genre as i say i love jackal it's one of my all-time favorite arcade machines but these uh these sections are not up to that standard for me i don't think if you if you play uh, capcom's commando nowadays it's uh it's kind of kind of cumbersome uh, so hard as well. But really I still, hard. yeah, it's really hard, uh, and it's kind of cumbersome to play because you have to actually face in the enemy's direction, yeah. uh, direction to to shoot them. Uh, yeah. But I think I still prefer playing Commando to the overhead sections in Super Contra. Yeah, I think out of out of all, I'd rather play Akari Warriors. But then, if you haven't got the right setup for that, you can't do the twisty joystick thing. So, yeah. um, I think some of the some of the PC. Uh, sticks that you can buy for your desktop do incorporate that 
uh, that control method, but obviously mm-hmm. only a limited number of games used it. Um, uh, Midnight Resistance was another, and uh, Guerrilla War, which was a sort of follow-up to Ikari Warriors, but there aren't that many uh, reasons to, to have one of those. Um, but yes, I think uh, I have slightly fonder memories of the Mode 7 top-down sections in the Super Nintendo version, uh, probably as much as anything, because they were they were just a little easier, I think. Yeah. Mm. A bit less Hieronymus Bosch-like with the perspective as well. Yeah, totally, yeah. Another thing that Super Contra did bring to the party was sloped surfaces. Uh, yeah. And one of the things that uh, I read, uh, there was a, a feature about the Retro Gamer magazine, unsurprisingly, has covered Contra a couple of times, uh, back in issue 109, which is quite some years ago now. Uh, their main criticism of Super Contra compared to the original was that the sloped surfaces, the fact that the, you know the tech was there for Konami to use, was that it actually overtook the more interesting multi-layered stage designs of the of Contra One, the, its predecessor. How do you feel on that, Mikhail? I didn't really uh, mind them much, but come to think of it, now now you post it like that, I think the uh, the tiered sections are uh, in the original Contra are more interesting because you get to play the levels in a variety of ways. Well, I'll, I'll, we'll summarize shortly. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting, you know, because I ended up playing Contra, Super Contra relatively contemporarily, albeit at first best part of 10 years ago when it when it arrived on XBLA. But, uh, but I didn't play it loads then. I played it a lot more now. Uh, so perhaps it gives me a better idea of generally how somebody might feel coming to Contra at all. We should also say, and I hope we get to cover it one day, uh, whether we can actually all finish it is another matter, but there is a game on Xbox Live Arcade and also PSN, I assume, called Hardcore Uprising, Yeah, which is Arc System Works, they of uh, Guilty Gear and Blaze Blue fame, or Blaze Blue, however you say it. Uh, it's their take on a Contra game. It is in the series, isn't it? It's it's canon. It's yeah. just had a sort of another name change for various reasons that follow on from other games that come in the meantime. And if, you, if you're interested to play a Contra-style game with up-to-date HD graphics and lots of extra features and levels and things like that, then Hardcore Uprising might be might be worth checking out and air dashing air, yeah and air dashing yeah very good point <laughs> yes which yeah. which uh yeah it was also used to good effect in in the, the mighty towerfall on uh, on on other systems and there's also there was also contra rebirth which is, again i'd like us to cover in the future uh, which was a we were game by m2 and i i haven't played it enough to know if it's got the same level of um love and care put into it as m2's other games but uh, but knowing how they work it wouldn't surprise me if that was worth checking out as well uh, Blue Weasel Breath, again, says, Before I'd ever completed Contra, I bought Super Contra at the mall, presuming it was a sequel from the screenshots. But I remember having a moment of doubt after purchasing it. But before getting home, because in the States it was called Super C, i.e. it didn't have the word Contra in the title. For a moment, I was afraid I'd bought a game from the wrong franchise. Eventually, I decided the C logo was the same as that of the original Contra, which put my mind at ease, and the gameplay completely reassured me that it was a sequel. I dug the overhead gameplay of the sequel, which reminded me of Ikari Warriors, a game I had played, enjoyed, and completely sucked at. I sucked at Contra 2, come to think of it. Even the Konami code didn't help me enough. I can't be sure, but I'm almost certain that I didn't beat either game until I used the Game Genie to give me infinite lives. Contra is unbelievably tough. When I went back to play Super C a few months back before selling my NES and games, I couldn't get more than 60 seconds into the first level. Super C's a 
quite a different game, isn't it, as well, for a port of yeah. Super Contra. Yeah. I wouldn't have put the two and two together, I don't think, if, I'd, if I hadn't have known that one was a port of the other. I think they were kind of different but related games in the series. Yeah, I think I think it's possibly uh, it's fine to to think of it that way. Konami were fantastic at uh, utilizing the strengths of the host platform uh, to the extent that, as we've discussed many times, but without actually covering any of the games where it's relevant. One day we might uh, Tiny Toons, Sparkster, and Probotector. Each sixteen-bit console got its own game uh, of of a lot of their key franchises. Castlevania as well being another one, and that was such God. That was such. A cool thing now I think back on it like uh, obviously you wouldn't get that now the operating systems and, and architecture is is so relatively similar across the board uh, and you can press a convert button on various pieces of software and get your Xbox One version and your Wii U version or whatever else but back in the day the architecture of the Super Nintendo and the Mega Drive a- apart from being 16-bit were basically not the same in any way <laughs> and uh, <laughs> They had all different processors, all different color palettes, all different sprite handling. Everything was was just so different. And yeah. Konami were one of the few developers who didn't just go for straight ports. They went for completely different games. So that was, I guess that was one of the first reasons where, when I thought I was in my, you know, I was in my twenties in the 16 bit era, I was started thinking, well, you've got to have both consoles because otherwise if you're a, if you're a fan of Contra or Probotector or any of those other Konami franchises, how do you play all the games in in the franchise. You've got to have both systems, right? And yeah, yeah that's persisted from my point of view. Joshi Hatsumitsu, Joshi, Joshi Hatsumitsu uh, from the forum says, my NES Mini gave me the first opportunity to play Super C. And from the limited time I've played it, I've enjoyed it. It certainly has a sense of humour because I'll think I'm being clever by jumping over some enemy bullets and readying myself up for some killing only to land and get knocked on my ass from an enemy running in from the left. Kind of makes me laugh. But my first actual experience is with Probotector on my Game Boy. I remember in gaming magazines being made aware that this was basically Contra, but with robots replacing humans. Uh, as robots are still a minority group who can't vote on such profoundly sensitive issues. Still, very cool box art may have contributed to its appeal. Again, I didn't finish it, but the one-hit kills and unforgiving nature of the gameplay translated well to the handheld, and I enjoyed it. It was difficult, but somewhat fair, and I just didn't have the skill then, or now really. But when you were playing well and empowering up your gun and everything clicked, it made for a rewarding experience. And that heartbreaking moment when you die and realise that you're back to the very weak standard gun. Ugh. It was certainly a series, especially with the first two titles that still had that arcade design to it, in that you were encouraged to keep putting your coins into the machine. And on the home consoles, it was pretty much the same, except you've already paid up front for the experience. As a recommendation, I'd say go for it mainly because they are not particularly expensive games anyway, and they are pretty widely available on many platforms. Uh, thank you, Joshi, although not as many platforms as they might be. Yes, Operation C uh, was a late addition for this show because uh, I've got to admit, it kind of um, passed me by then and now. So this is nominally a port of Super Contra for the Game Boy, and uh, it was by Konami again, using their uh, one of their talented in-house teams. Uh, I've watched it being played uh, and it looks like a mighty impressive technical feat on the Game Boy. Uh, some, you know, cracking music coming from that little 8-bit box. Uh, now, I believe that Dan is the only one of us who's got experience of this, but um, praise for, for Game Boy Contra? Well, it was big in the playground at school. I remember it being one of those games that people passed around, like where you pass around the Game Boy on the bench and 
and uh, everyone enjoyed that. So it must have been like an import copy, I guess, because if it was renamed to Probotector here, then I suppose it's the era where people went yeah. on holiday and bought Game Boy games and, and that kind of thing. But True. yeah, I remember yeah. Um, being Region quite free. impressed that there was a Contra game or a Grisel, as I thought of it, game yes. on the Game Boy at the time. Especially as Game Boy hardware is quite similar to Spectrum, so it gave me the feel of the one that I'd kind of grown up with and, and loved. Of course. Absolutely. And uh, having watched it, uh, which was yeah, really today for the first time I've ever seen it in action, I was genuinely impressed and I found myself, even though it's black and white, it's monochrome, of course, or it would have been yellow and grey back in the day. But there's a lot of sprites, a lot of movement on screen. Uh, I, I guess the, the playthrough I was watching is was under emulation, but um, I don't know. Do, do you have memories of, of slowdown or sprite flicker or any issues like that? No, I think the actual game was, was as smooth as it as it comes across as looking in in YouTube videos. Um, cool. Definitely had a sort of solid flow to it. Yeah, very nice game. Now, I also wonder, was it as challenging as other games, given that the, the nature of the hardware presumably meant that things were a slightly less hectic pace and slightly fewer bullets on screen and things, but then conversely, you've always got the issue of less uh, real estate to jump around in. So do you remember it being super tough or manageable? Well, like I say, I've only played it in the playground at school, so I wouldn't have ever got further than a couple of levels or so. Um, so it's difficult to say, but yeah, I think that it's exactly that, that there's a trade-off between just how much space there is to, to throw yourself around the screen and the um, with the pixels being what they are, that the bullets do have to be that much bigger in comparison to everything else. So Yeah, so that came out in uh, 1991, and uh, January in Japan. February in America, and we only had to wait till May. Uh, of course, uh, there's no uh, PAL issues either. With that, it uh, it will run at the same uh, pace, even if it has, even if it, there is a Probotector version with robots in it. Possibly less distinct on the Game Boy, whether you're fighting with humans or robots, anyway, isn't it? Because the sprites tend to be quite uh, quite simplistic. I don't know. Anyway, could have been guys in armor. Right, we have uh, a couple of three-word reviews each uh, from our Twitter at Canaan Rince, starting with Dan. Alex Muskell says, "Imprison North again." Oh wait. Uh, James Winder or Winder, I reckon Winder says, "Controller meets screen." Andrew Brown says, "Better spreader getter." Matthew Woolley says, "Hard as hell." Craig says, "Never stop shooting." And Riku says, "Use Konami code." Yeah, why not use that Konami code? Can't remember if that works on the. I don't think that works on the arcade version or on the 360 no, version. Definitely it's not. It, definitely not. No. NES. Uh, uh, you can have seven lives, and that's your lot. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it it returned the code to return mostly in Gradius games. I think Gradius yeah. was also the first game to feature it, the NES port of Gradius. Yeah, which is less useful in a sense because you've still got to manage the checkpoints, and if you get killed in Gradius, you lose all your weapons. So. It was actually implemented for, uh, I think, one of the uh, people at Konama. You couldn't play through the game, so they it was basically yeah. like a test or a debug function yeah. that they just decided. Totally. They just kept in. I think that's the origin of most cheat codes, isn't it? Um, yeah. And, and the kind of how they, how and why they exist. Certainly, lots of uh, developer uh, debug stuff is is uh, left in games, and sometimes yeah. it makes things easier. All right, so to summarise, kind of tricky. Uh, I'll, I'll go first. The Contra games are probably more uh, of an interesting uh, historical document than a game that you necessarily want to uh, would want to play now. I could be wrong about that. It depends very much on your, your leanings, of course, um, and whether you're up for the challenge. 
certainly the the versions I'm not familiar with on on NES sound. I think I get the impression there, if anything, even more challenging than the arcade versions. Depending on how you play them, obviously there's emulators and save states and things like that. And the Mega Man games still get released a lot, and people still play them, so that's all good. Uh, so. I would right now recommend probably picking up the original Contra on Arcade Archives on PS4 that I imagine uh, is a system that uh, many of our listeners will have easily accessible. Wait for a sale if you want, if you want to pay three quid or equivalent rather than six quid. But it's definitely worth uh, a play. I think um, there's also a very, very, there's no platinum trophy, by the way, on the uh, on the Arcade Archives games, but there is the most ridiculously easy set of, uh, a small set of trophies that you can get. It is literally for stuff like going into the options menu and playing a game and stuff like that. So if, if that's your fan, tickles your fancy, but there are lots of reasons for the more committed player to pick up that version. As I say, the caravan mode, the online high score uh, mode with mandatory default settings and stuff like that. And just a really nice emulation of a really classic game Uh, that is still, I think at its core fun to play because the controls are so responsive. It sounds great. It looks cool. It's got all that sort of eighties action stuff going on and aliens and Arnie and blowing sprites away. Uh, There's definitely still entertainment to be had from it. Um, I still always slightly find myself going back more easily to spaceship shooters because of the freedom of movement. But but as we've discussed, there's there's more here on offer than perhaps at first meets the eye. And, And if you meet the challenge, you may find it even more rewarding than just chucking infinite credits in and playing to the end. So yeah, uh, an important franchise and still a fun one. Uh, Mikhail. I've been on the uh, Gunstar Heroes podcast before. I bemoan the fact that Gunstar Heroes just feels kind of messy in between the boss battles. My direct comparison was uh, the Contra games, which uh, yeah, definitely in comparison seems like they were designed to play through without ever getting hit by anything. Maybe uh, if I rank uh, run-and-gun games platform shooters... I would uh, say that the Metal Slugs, Slug games 1, two, one uh, X and 3 are definitely on top, but there's just very little to compare to the speed, the, the brisk pacing, and the, the overall feel of Contra. The, it's just like my main issue with the Contra games have always been uh, the variety stages, the tunnel sections in 1, the top-down sections in uh, in 2, um, the overhead sections in uh, Super uh, or Contra 3 or, or Contra Spirits. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I really, really dislike them. I think they just feel short of the side-scrolling, uh, platforming and shooting action. If I could just get a, a Contra game that is just that, that places those, those levels, uh, uh, replaces those levels with more side-scrolling shooting action, then... Um, that those would have been my my favorite my perfect games basically. Right. Did you play Contra Four? I th- I can't remember if that has alternate stages. Uh, no, I haven't actually. And I actually I really am dying to get my hands on a copy of uh, Contra Hardcore on a Mega Mega Drive, but it's uh, yeah pretty pretty pricey from what I've seen everywhere. Yeah, I'm not sure. Did that one come to Wii Virtual Console? Uh, in the meantime, there is Contra Rebirth. I'm not sure if that has, I think that maybe that's all side scrolling, but I could yeah. be wrong. But it's it's uh it's pretty short. Oh, uh, is it okay? Yeah. Well, they're all. Pretty I know you short. like your hard <laughs> you games, but um, th- is the Japanese version any cheaper? Of hardcore, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, maybe I'll. Because it's um, um it's an it's an easier version. Not it's not easy by any stretch. Don't get me wrong, but no. um, it has a health bar, right? 
yeah, yeah. So the yeah. E and the yeah, the EU and UK versions are um, just I think that a bit too hard, and the American version, yeah. I'll remember that when we do that show, definitely. <laughs> Which so, ones yeah, to play? If uh, if Contra One and Two would uh, uh, have just only the the side scrolling and shooting actions, then uh, I would uh, I would they would have been my favourite ones. Cool. And uh, yeah, obviously we've mentioned Metal Slug a couple of times, which is needless to say another series that's on the very long list of Kane and Rince games that we'd love to cover one day. Yeah. Uh, so let's conclude with our guest, Dan Contras. It's funny for me, the, it's the variety that I think I liked, even though I don't like those levels as much as the side-scrolling levels. But yeah. um, I, at the time, I liked games with variety. Um, Ocean Software were masters of that, and they did the conversion of uh, Grizor at the time. You know, where they with the Robocop game, say, where you'd have a side-scrolling level and then a shooting into the screen level and that kind of thing. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I just I love games that do that, where you just don't mm. quite know where it's going to go from, from minute to minute. But um, And also, it's a... As McKeel says, with the uh, the speed aspect, it's that much... It's, it's a run-and-gun rather than a walk-and-gun, which yeah. somehow Metal Slug and uh, Midnight Resistance and a few others, they do feel quite slow-paced. Maybe it's just in comparison to Contra, mm. but um, mm. yeah, yeah this, the immediacy of Contra is um, is what drags me back. And I'd, I'd forgotten quite how diverse it is in gameplay as well. That um, Not really, I don't mean depth as in huge gameplay depth, but um, just that it's nuanced that, like we said with the jump, where it is just that close to when you press the button. And just um, it just has this sharp feel that um, even if you just play it as a curio, I think people will appreciate what it went on to uh, influence later down the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I wonder, uh, obviously it would fundamentally break the game in some ways, but it'd be interesting if, because uh, one of the things that sometimes hard to go back to games from this era is the fact that when, when you jump, you stay jump, or you're committed to your jump. There is no altering your jump in midair. It'd be interesting if the game would still work, if you had, uh, if you had more air control over your jump or whether it would just ruin it. Uh, Ghouls and Ghosts, another series that we'd love to cover one day if we can complete those games. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, also, apologies for um, linking Manuel, Manuel Noriega with the Iran Contras. Of course, he was the Nicaraguan Contras. Um, I think the jungle setting I've always associated with Nicaraguan Contras rather than Iranian Contras. So sorry for being stupid earlier. <laughs> That's all right. We've got to get our yeah. We've got to get our political stuff straight. Uh, so it just remains for me, Leon, to. Th- Thank Mikiel and Dan. Dan, have you got anything you want to share with our audience this time? Listen out for the best album in the world ever. There, Ooh, <laughs> mysterious. Actually, two of the best albums in the world ever. Um, but that's probably giving too much away. Um, yeah. Are those the album titles, or it's probably going to be Hope and Fear? But that might be a bit too obvious. So there might right. be um, some play on those somehow. The idea is that um, two albums that no, because it's going to be giving too much of. Oh, okay. It's going to sound so stupid and cryptic. I'm sounding like such an idiot. But um, <laughs> yeah, if you uh, if you know me on the internet, find me and uh, and I'll let you know more about it. But um, it's a bit hush hush at the okay. moment, just because it's weird and um, a bit Easter eggy and um, hidden things and stuff. So yeah, keep your ears open. Curious, sir. Uh, and how do people find you on the internet? Then that would be a good um, thing. Well, I'd rather make a friend than uh, get a like. So I don't have like an artist page on Facebook or anything. But uh, you can find me. I'm Dan Clark on there. We probably have mutual friends in common because most people seem to. Um, or on Twitter, you can find me at Mealtime Strategy. Or oh, I found an account the other day. Um, 
I only got the name just because I couldn't believe that after 10 years of Twitter it wasn't gone. Uh, Homeboy Pimpson. So um, if you <laughs> yeah, if you can find me there as well. I haven't actually tweeted anything much on there. But um, I just couldn't believe that the name Homeboy Pimpson wasn't gone after 10 years of Twitter. So I had to claim it. Uh, and I believe we'll see you back here at least once more this uh, this volume of Cane and Rinse. I can't remember what, what we've got coming up, but I'm sure you're, you're coming back on at some stage. So it just remains for me to tell you all that next time in issue 254, prepare for the battle, prepare for the war, prepare for the real street fighter blood war, the third of the third, prepare to die for... Mm-hmm.